Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to today's Live Inspired podcast episode. Don't miss my Monday motivation essay. I'll reflect on my main takeaway from today's discussion and send it directly to your inbox so that you can begin your week just right. I want you to go right now and sign up at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash Monday hyphen motivation. One more time, it's johnolearyinspires.com forward slash Monday hyphen motivation. I'll include a link in the show notes. See you there. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, thank you, Joe Buck, and hello, my friends. A question for you today as we begin the Live Inspired Podcast. What if success does not equal happiness? I'm going to say that again in case you're just tuning in right now. I want to make sure you're following with us all the way through. What if success does not straight up equal happiness? You know, many of us spend our entire lives pursuing a singular idea of what success is, one that was created for us by someone else. We give votes to those who should not even have a voice, and then we strive to go faster and faster, even as we find ourselves falling farther and farther behind. Sound familiar? Well, the author of Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Out Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life, will help us redefine what success is, what happiness means, and how we can achieve both today in our own journey. Laura Gastner-Odding helps people get unstuck and she helps them achieve extraordinary results in their life. Her 25-year resume is defined by her entrepreneurial edge. She served as the presidential appointee in Bill Clinton's White House. She helped shape AmeriCorps. That's pretty cool. Left a leadership role at a respected not-for-profit to begin her own journey forward in the not-for-profit space. She has become an author. She is a TED speaker. She's internationally traveled and accomplished. She's an amazing woman thinker. And she's here today to help each of us, myself included, live into the limitless possibility of our own journey. She's going to help us get unstuck. My friends, I invite you all right now to open wide your hearts, maybe open a little bit wider your minds, prepare to get limitless in your journey going forward as I bring on our newest friend, her name, Laura Gassner-Odding. Laura, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Hey, John, I am so thrilled to be here today. Uh, we are delighted to have you. And for those who have not yet heard your work or read your book, tell us a little bit about the work you're doing today. Yeah, so I actually, bizarrely enough, spend my days as an author and a speaker, which is crazy because I didn't know this job existed. (laughs) You know, I I I ran a I founded and ran a very successful executive search firm that worked specifically in the nonprofit sector. Mm -hmm. I sold it to my team about four years ago now, and I got asked to do a TEDx talk. And after that talk, I got offered to go speak in. Idaho for the, the, the Idaho, the annual the state convention of their nonprofit executives, and they offered me money. And right. I went, wait, what? This is a job? And, you know, I think we all go to school, you know, high school, college, pick a trade, we pick a major, we pick a path, and they're very specific, predefined roads of success that mm. other people have walked for us. And I, I 
looked up one day and I went, wait a minute, this is a job. This is fascinating. I like doing this. I mean, you get on stage and you talk to audiences and you move their hearts by telling them your story and everything you've learned since. And, and, And just having that opportunity to spread a message in this way and getting paid for it, just every time I tell people this is my job, I almost feel like I've got like a like a like a like a bag of cash, and I'm running away from the bank because it just I can't believe it. It's real. Well, it is real, and you do it well. Tell me though, when you say I get to stand in front of people and I get to share this message that I care about, what what is this message that you care about? So for 20 years, I did executive search for nonprofit executives, right? The people who are, they have purpose, right? Capital P, purpose. And they were at the top of their game. I mean, I was finding executives for major international foundations, universities, advocacy organizations. And you would think that these people have figured it out. They found their purpose. They found their way. And I was struck constantly by the fact that they were successful. On paper, they had it all. And yet they were sitting in my office talking to me about finding another job because they weren't that happy. And I was so fascinated by the divergence between this idea of success and happiness because I was always told growing up, if you're successful, you'll be happy. And I was struck by the people that I was interviewing weren't. And what I realized over time as I looked at them and as I looked at my own story was that I was so limited by everybody else's definition of success, the singular, myopic, unflinching definition that the fastest and most expedient path to the corner office is the only one that matters. And I realized that definition is limiting. It limited these executives that I was interviewing, and it limited me. It limited all of my friends who were having children and might maybe wanted to stay home with their kids and felt like, well, I trained to do this, but now I'm just staying at home. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I've, I've had kids and, you know, I want to spend time with them, but I just need to make more money and I need to have this job, right? We all have this thing where we say, well, I do this, but, yeah. and we're so busy justifying because we're limited by everybody else's definitions of success. And so, the message that I, that I spread when I speak on these stages for the thousands of people is to start ignoring everybody else and to figure out what success is going to mean for you in this one big juicy life that you have on planet Earth and lean into that with everything you have mm. because that's when success will make you happy. You, know, you used a word a moment ago that I hate hearing when people are telling me what they do professionally or personally, and it's the word just. I just stay home, or I'm just a custodian, or just a barista, or just a CEO. Uh, Why do you think we limit ourselves by saying we just are anything? You know, I think we spend a lot of time looking at social media, looking at everybody else who has it all. Uh, You know, it's... I'm not going to, look, I'm not going to harsh on social media. I actually love social media. I use it to keep in touch with friends, with family. It has helped me create communities of people that I didn't know before. It has been a great tool to spread the message of this book. It's been a great tool to reach out to people who are alone and really, you know, need a touch point. But there's also this thing on social media where we look at everybody else's highlight reels. And we judge our own bloopers by their highlight reels. Mm -hmm. And then we feel like failures. You know, this year, uh, I I travel a ton, you know, as as you do. I travel about 150,000 miles a year, which is a lot. And it puts me on the road almost every week. Now, I have a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old at home. And that means I have to do some really fancy dance moves in order to be there for, you know, those big moments, right? The the, the, the middle school music recital, the mm-hmm. science fair, the parent-teacher conferences, or, you know, 
the granddaddy of them all, right? The one moment that I can prove to the world that I am the best mother on the planet, the first day of school <laughs> with fancy first day of school photos. Now, we've all seen those first day of school photos, right? With all those perfect families and their perfect matching outfits. And this year, my perfect children didn't stop bickering with each other long enough to sit still for the photo. So I didn't get the photo. And I was so frustrated that I had moved mountains in order to be home that I did what any you know good parent would do. On a beautiful crisp New England day, I went over and I closed all the windows so that the neighbors <laughs> wouldn't hear. And then I yelled at my children with all my might. I mean, I like I let them have it. Like alien, oh, came out of my body. It was an outer, otherworldly moment. And then we drove to school in stony silence with me in the front seat fuming and them in the back seat fuming. And I was, I was driving along really questioning every sacrifice I'd ever made as a mother and especially every sacrifice I never made as a working mother. And they got out of school leaving the stink of teenage angst behind them. And you know... That stink is real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just no matter for breeze, I can get rid of that stink. And I drove home thinking about all the ways I punished them. And then by the time they got home and we started to have a conversation about it again, with me telling them how, of course, their behavior affected me because it was all about me wanting to put this fancy picture on Facebook, my kid said, you know, Mom, it was the first day of school and we were a little stressed, right? Like new teachers, right. new classrooms, new friends. And by the way, it seems like I know you had like a book chapter due and maybe you were a little stressed too and maybe none of us were at our best. And my brilliant children came up with this idea that we should have a do-over the next day. And so we woke up the next day, I made breakfast, they showered, everybody was happy, and I got that perfect photo. And what do you think I'd do with that photo? Of course, I posted it to Facebook, post it. right? Life is but perfect. I put, but I put on Facebook, happy second day of school. And then I told this story about how in, how in the, the imperfect, how when we stop judging our bloopers for everybody else's highlight reels, when we said, you know, screw the Joneses and their perfect family, then we figured out that our definition of success wasn't that perfect first day of school, that in fact it was being the kind of family that could have the conversation about why things went wrong and who we are when we uplift each other, mm-hmm. that was our definition of success, and that's how we found grace. And it was shocking to me, the number, like hundreds of people commenting, thank you so much, that was amazing, I thought your life was so perfect, I'm so happy to see that it's not, I'm sorry that it's not, but, you know, I think showing that vulnerability, so it's not, I get to do this, and I get to do that, and I get to do this, and I'm perfect, and you're not, I think I took the just out of it because I took away this idea that everything is perfect and I'm just the stay-at-home mom or I'm just the custodian, and, but you've got it all figured out. And I think we have to stop looking at everyone else and saying, they've got it all figured out and I'm just less than. So you spend your career now teaching not only your teenagers, but the rest of us on how to live limitlessly and how to kind of take those imperfect moments and live as perfect a life as possible going forward from them. But I'm curious, who were some of the great teachers for you growing up? I understand you grew up in South Florida. Talk about some of your influences growing up. Yeah, I grew up in Miami in the 80s, which is a fascinating time to be there. If you've ever seen Scarface. John Jansen and uh, Tubby Smith. Who what, what, what are the guys growing up? Oh, like yeah, yeah, Miami yeah. Vice I mean, guys. Miami Vice, all of it. I mean, I joke around with people that that wasn't fictional. I mean, we seemed like, like there, like I, I graduated in a high school. I actually started 10th grade with like 1,200 students and graduated with 624. 
Um, and I joke around that our cheerleading uniforms came in small, medium, large, and maternity. But the truth is, it, it's not it's not that much of a joke. I mean, I really grew up at a time when lots of drug money came into Miami very quickly. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we had, when I went back to my 10th high school reunion, we were, you know, the stories of people that got shot during drug busts and, and, and drug deals were more than you might imagine. So it was a pretty interesting time to grow up there because I think the focus for us in high school was like, yeah, get a good education, but like graduate. Right. That would be great. Right. I mean, it was like the bar was kind of low. Um, And so I think I learned a lot about lots of other people and how, how, what makes people happy isn't going to be the same for all of us. I mean, there were not, maybe a hundred of the 600 of us went to college. It wasn't like a high achievement a pedigree center kind of kind of environment. And I think there was something about the Miami in the eighties that was like, there are hard rules and there are soft rules, you know? So it was a lot of like, you make your own luck. Like it was, it was, we had, you know, overwhelmingly immigrant population. People mm-hmm. were from everywhere. And my high school was a third white, a third Latino, a third um, African-American. Even like among the Latinos, you had the Colombians right, and the right. Cubans and the Puerto Ricans and the Venezuelans and the Dominicans. And so, it was one giant melting pot of people just kind of figuring it out together, but also knowing that if they were going to be, it had to be up to them to be it. So let's talk about if it's up to them, they got to be it. Because I think that's ultimately what the work that you're doing is teaching us and reminding us what is possible if you choose it, if you really fully go all in on it. Uh, I'd like you to define the word limitless. What, what does that word mean to you? For me, limitless means. You know, you know there are those moments, John, when you are at your very best. You are just you're firing on all cylinders. You're making it rain. You're closing the deal. You're bringing down the house when you're speaking. You know those moments? I'm waiting for it. Hey, I know what you mean, whether that's as a parent or as a son or as a speaker or uh, taking out the trash in just the right tenor. So I, I hear you loud right. and clear. Yes. Right. So like, it could be that or it could be right those quiet moments when you're a, a father or a son or right. maybe you're helping a loved one through a difficult situation. Maybe you're helping a colleague through a tough time. Maybe you're working by yourself, putting that proposal together. It could be public. It could be private. Mm-hmm. It could be loud. It could be quiet. It could be bright. It could be dark. But it's that moment when everything that you can do and everything that you love is being called upon to solve the problem at hand. The problem that you care about. It's when you are in alignment, when you're in flow. It's when you have consonance. You, you use that me, word a lot. For our listeners who don't know what it means, tell me, tell me, tell me and us what it means. Yeah, so consonance is harmony. It's, we all know what dissonance feels like when we're fighting against something, when it's just weird. weird, weird. It, it feels like we don't fit. Uh, for me, consonance is when what you do matches who you are. So when the actions, you know, so in, I feel like we spend a lot of time saying, I'm so exhausted. I'm so busy. It's such a martyrdom environment we live in where we have to be busier than now. But I think the exhaustion doesn't come from being too busy. I think it comes from the spaces in between the too busy when we're code shifting, when we're changing, you know, mental costumes between the person we are at work and the person we are at home or the person we are with our friends and the person that we are with our family. You know, if you are, if, if you're, if you are an oncologist, you know, you're a cancer doctor and you, what you love to do on the weekends is 
hang out with your cigar club, that's going to make for a life where you're not really, you know, completely together. Or, you know, if you're a, if you're a dental hygienist and what you really love to do is, is, is make candy, you know, you're not going to be able to go to work and talk about your hobby without people giving you a little bit of side eye. <laughs> um, so it, it's, it's a little complicated. So when you can be the person that you are in all parts of your life, you no longer have to worry about work-life balance. You can have yeah. work-life alignment. And then each part of who you are makes you a better version in each of those places. And that, I think, is being limitless. What you're saying, I think the majority of us are nodding our heads too. So my question is, then why is it so hard for us to become aligned? Why do we feel like we're balancing a million jobs and doing none of them at the end of the day very well? Because somebody along the way said, you know, you're a really argumentative young woman. You should become a lawyer. Ask me how I know. Right. Right. I'm feeling (laughs) it. grade. In fourth grade, I had a teacher that was like, you're pretty argumentative. I mean, you won't be surprised to find out that I told her she was wrong, of course. (laughs) And here's why. And here's why. Here's my six-point reason why. But you also won't be surprised to know that then I spent the next 10 years creating an educational path that got me to law school, where I sat down the very first week and looked around and went, oh, my God, I've made a huge mistake. I don't belong here. I don't Mm -hmm. want to be a lawyer. And I think that that happens to us, whether it's a teacher who, without a crystal ball, or Ouija board comes up with some random statement that we take as definitional to who we are. Or maybe it's a parent who loves us dearly and says, you know, if you just check the box of getting married to the right person, and if you just go to the right school and get the right job, and we go, okay, they love me, so that must be right. Or maybe it's a boss who says, um, you're, at the end of the day, your success is measured by the profit margin, right? Or how many widgets you can sell mm-hmm. or whatever, the commission that you make, whatever it is, when really what you want to be doing is you want to help the person on the other side of the table, you know, the client, the customer, whoever it might be. Or maybe when you're 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, you're told to pick a path, mm-hmm. a trade, a college, something. And the problem with that age is that at 16, 17, 18 years old, we don't have a frontal lobe, you know, like the actual part of your brain that dictates good decision-making. And so right. we're asked to make a decision about the rest of our lives when we're not actually able to make good ones. And then we get five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years into it, and we turn around and we say, wait, the life that I built doesn't fit because I was filling someone else's definition. And when we don't allow ourselves to say at every age and at every life stage, my definition of success might be different and I can actually change. Oh, and by the way, the world around me is changing so fast that if I don't change, that's a problem too. Then we get stuck in this place where we're defining ourselves and we're, we're rating ourselves based on everybody else's definition and not one that's changing with us and with time. So it's, it seems like one of the next critical steps is to actually pause long enough to identify and maybe remember or uncover what it is that we are attracted to in the first place. Like, what is our definition of success? Yes, and so I created a quiz um, that if your listeners are going, well, I don't even know where to start. Right. Um, limitlessassessment.com, and I'll say it again, limitlessassessment.com. And what it does is throughout the book, I talk about these four areas of consonance, um, things that I saw over the course of 20 years really um, allowed people to feel like they were limitless. And, it, it, and, and they are, and we can go into them in more depth, but they are calling, mm-hmm. connection, 
contribution and control. And what the quiz does, it takes about 15 minutes, and there's some you know, pretty catalyzing questions in there. It walks the reader through each of these four areas, and at the end gives a radar chart that shows how, many, um, how much of each of the elements of calling, connection, contribution, and control you have in your life right now, and how much of each you want. Because for some people, they may say, I actually don't care what this company does. I just want to make sure that it allows me to have the flexibility right. to live the life that I want and manifest my values and have the lifestyle. As long as I can control how much hustle earns me what money, then I don't care. Other people may say, if I'm not doing something that's making the world a better place, then my life doesn't matter. And it doesn't actually matter if I'm getting coffee for people or if I'm the one who's selling the big thing, as long as I'm doing it towards that calling. But all of us are going to define these things differently, and all of us are going to want to need them differently, again, at each age and at each life stage. Talk about connection. I, I think all four of the C's that you lay out there are incredibly valuable, uh, and we really could spend a lot of time unpacking each one. But talk about connection. Why does that one matter to us? So connection really answers the question, if I called in sick to work tomorrow, or if I didn't get out of bed and, you know, see my family tomorrow, like it, it's, it, I define work really as where you spend the majority of your productive hours. So it could be paid work or unpaid work. It could be at home with the family. It could be working in your community. It could be, you know, in the corner office. It, it's however you spend your, your majority of your productive hours of your day. And connection really says, if my calling is this problem I want to solve, this business that I want to build, this family that I want to grow, um, this bottom line that I want to develop, whatever your calling is, is the work that I'm doing on a daily basis actually helping me reach that? Do I have sight lines about why my mm. work actually matters? And that could be that either A, it doesn't, or B, you just don't have sight lines into it. But really what it says is, is, is if you look at your calendar and if you look at your to-do list, do, are, do those things match? And do they actually match your calling? Or are you so busy doing all the little stuff, emptying your inbox and answer, you know, having, getting the drive-bys of the, like, right. can I pick your brain and you got a couple minutes? Are you actually making progress towards that thing, that calling that you care about? So, Lauren, knowing the answer that you've just laid out there, like, does it match up? Knowing that the answer for the majority of us is no, it does not match up. Then what is our next step forward to ensure that it does become aligned? I think that the, the the question you have to ask is, it, does it match up or do I, does it not match up or do I just not see how it matches up? So if it doesn't match up, then I think there's a question of, well, then what am I so busy doing? Mm -hmm. right? I think it's asking a different question. I think we spend a lot of time saying, how can I help? When what we really need to be saying is, is asking the question, what needs to happen? So, for example, if, if a friend comes to you, knocks on your door and says, my car is broken down, you would say, and he says, I can't get to work, and without going to work, I can't afford to pay my mechanic and pay my rent. You would say, well, how can I help? And his answer would be, well, I need, a, I need a ride to work. So you take the guy to work. Have you solved this problem? Yes, if the, if, the, if the problem is that he needs to get to work that day. But if you ask him a question, well, what needs to happen? Overall, he would say, well, I need to get to work today, but then I also actually really need new skills, some introductions, a better resume so I can get a job that can help me afford both my rent and the mechanic. And so I think if your calling is that you want to help you know, your neighbor, then you can be really busy or you can be really impactful. And yes, we have to like put the Band-Aid on the, on the blood right. right now, 
but we also want to make sure that, it, it, that, that we're not just running on the treadmill faster and faster, but we're actually going somewhere. So I think the first thing is to think about, are we asking ourselves the right questions? Am I the most important person? Am I the person who needs to be doing this thing? Or did I just get asked to chair the bake sale because I was the closest proximate body, right? Like, am I right. the one who should be doing this? Or is this a distraction to the work that I actually want to do that, that connects me to my calling? The second part of the question is, well, what if you just don't have sight lines into that? And sometimes that's just popping your head up and asking if you can tag along to a meeting or um, uh, asking how decisions get made or maybe volunteering to be part of a committee that might be part of that long-range process. And, you know, a lot of times our bosses don't want to, uh, they don't want to lean on us for yet another thing because they're afraid that we're going to take off or we're, we're not going to pay attention. But when you, when you're, when your boss actually sees that you've got, you're showing some leg, right? You've got some energy in it. Mm-hmm. Y- you will get so many more sight lines into how decisions are being made that actually you will have even deeper connection to that calling. This idea of leaned in, I know it's something you write about, something you speak about. T- talk to me and our listeners about what that concept of lean in means. And then why do you think, uh, John, it's just really not working the way we might've hoped. I read Lean In when it first came out, and I really wanted to love it. I mean, I knew I was supposed to love it, right? Like the army of women, we all loved it. And I just didn't. It makes sense, right? Say yes to every possible project, every possible assignment, lean into all parts of your life at every possible moment, and do it early enough so that the dividends of the network and the knowledge and the resources and the opportunities pay off in a compound interest type of trajectory for the rest of your career. It made total sense, and it was who I was in my bones. And I also achieved success that way. I used every possible opportunity to push my way into – I mean, I, I literally bled for a job once. I was volunteering in the White House right after the presidential campaign, and I was been volunteering for four weeks, and I noticed that there was a, um, a sign for uh, blood donations, and I literally signed up to be on the cot next to my boss so that I could have his undivided attention for 15 minutes while we bled into plastic bags. <laughs> so like I get the idea of like doing, like doing everything you possibly can and throwing everything you have at something. It's just, it is who I am. And yet the idea of lean in was that you do all these things so that you can get to the corner office as fast as humanly possible. And that you judge your success when you get to the top. And I did that, and I got to the top, and I went, mm, the top's what? Mm-hmm. Is this really where I want to be? I'm successful, right? On paper, I had that same life, the, you know, that I, all these executives I was interviewing. I was the youngest vice president of the search firm. I mean, it was, I was rocking and rolling, but my life didn't feel right for me because it wasn't actually right for me. And I realized that when I was sitting in, in that corner office, looking out over the park and looking at my, my client across the table and thinking, you know, in my mind, we're on the same side of the table. We're both fighting to change the world. But in their mind, they're on one side of the table and I'm on the other side of the table. And in between us is the profit and loss statement of my company. And my boss is sitting here on my side of the table with me saying, do the work faster, do the work with more profit, be more expedient. And I was thinking that's profit first and not my client's mission first. And if we're in this business to help change the world by finding these nonprofits the best talent possible, I want it to be enough profit 
but mission first. It didn't need mm-hmm. to be for profit. It needed to be for enough profit. And so I had that sort of Jerry Maguire moment and went into my boss. I was like, there's a better way to do this. We can do it faster and with more profit and with more authenticity and better for our clients and blah, 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 blah. Show me the money, like, Laura. Show me the money. He was like, great. Yeah, you can either stay and do it my way or there's the door. And so once I realized that I was part of the problem, I couldn't live in that. You know, once you know that you're not part of the solution, there's only one other option and you have to make a choice. Do I continue to be part of what I think is the problem or do I actually help solve it? And I asked myself that question, not how can I help, but what needs to happen? What needed to happen was that I needed to change the way executive search was done for nonprofit organizations. And so I walked away from the corner office position and I started my own thing. So my issue with Lean In, it wasn't the way she achieved success, right? This unflinching myopic, like, let's go as fast as we possibly can. It was how she defined it because that definition wasn't working for me. And I think a lot of people, men and women both, are super constrained by this idea that success can only be leaning in. How do you create space then, Laura, for us to define what success is individually? Because I actually think that's the main issue here is that we're climbing the ladder rapidly and it's leaning against the wrong wall. So how do we gain the perspective to understand which wall to lean against and how high we actually want to climb it? I mean, I spent 141 pages in the book talking about that. But I think it comes down to this question of where do you prioritize your need for calling, for connection, for contribution, and control. So when I was 21 years old working on a presidential campaign, I had all the calling in the world and I was working for this leader who inspired me. And I, I, you know, I heard him talk about this idea that there's nothing that's wrong with America that can't be fixed with what's right with America. And he presented as a, as a proposal, this idea of community service in exchange for college tuition. So changing yourself while you're changing a community. And I thought, yes, that makes so much sense. That needs to happen. And so I had all the calling I could possibly stand. I had no connection whatsoever. I mean, I was getting coffee. I was a gopher. I was a 21-year-old peon. That said, I was getting coffee to keep people awake who were making pretty big decisions. So, you know, I could see, I understood why it mattered, but my work did. If I called in sick, nobody would notice. They wouldn't be like, where is Laura? I had a ton of contribution, not that I was making a lot of money because um, I was worth my weight in ramen soup and idealism, but I, I was living, I was manifesting my values every single day. And I knew that if this guy won, I don't know, I might've gotten a pretty neat job out of it. And then who knows what would happen. And then in terms of control, God, I didn't have any control. I didn't know if they were going to send me to Des Moines or Poughkeepsie or, or Jacksonville the next day. But it didn't matter because I was 21 years old and I didn't have kids and I, I was lucky enough not to have student loans and I didn't have any – I was on my own. I could, like, couch surf and it was totally fine. Now I'm approaching 50 and my rubric is completely different, right? I need to have control of everything that's going on because I need to be able to do do and be there for the science fair and the first day of school and all the other things that are happening in my teenage son's lives. I want to make sure that in my calling I'm I'm – I am taking this book out into the world, but my connection right now really matters more than anything else because I am so torn into mm-hmm. 8 billion different places. I could be volunteering you know, for the school committee. I could be serving on nonprofit boards. I could be doing a million other things, young kids, older parents, et cetera. And so if I'm going to take time away from that, the work I'm doing had better matter. And then in terms of contribution, I realized that I'm an entrepreneur deep in my soul. And so for me, contribution, I want to make enough money 
but there's a difference between the want to make number and the need to make number. And I know the need to make number is table stakes because my bank won't take good karma in exchange for mortgage no matter how many times I ask. <laughs> but there's a, I also want to have the flexibility that the want to make number gives me also. And so I have to make sure that, you know, if I'm going to travel and if I'm going to speak on stage and if I'm going to do certain things, it has to come with a paycheck. That makes sense for me to go. It is that idea of knowing my value and knowing that if I am going to leave where I am to go do something else, it has to actually contribute to the kind of life that I want to live. For our listeners right now thinking, amazing what Laura is doing in her journey, but I'm too old or too uneducated or too disconnected, whatever the excuse might be. What might you say to those of us thinking, I can't do that. I'm glad she can, but I can't. This is where I can bring you the brilliance of my 16-year-old son who plays video games. I don't know if you play video games. I don't know if your kids play video my games. Kids do but I, you, I watch. Okay, so, you know, the, the, have you heard of this concept of the side quest? Oh, I have, actually, but tell us about it. Okay, so, this is so brilliant. I woke up one day, and I had a chapter that was due, and my son had a dentist appointment at 8.30, so he was going to go into school late. And I was just, I had a terrible night of sleep. I felt awful. I was like, this is, I'm, I'm not going to get anything done today. And I was bemoaning, I was lamenting my tale of woe to my 16-year-old as we were sitting waiting at the dentist office. And he turned to me and he was like, well, why don't you just go on a side quest? Mm, <laughs> it's like, well, term. what's that? And he said, well, you know, like after dinner, when I, you know, after I do the dishes and I'm waiting for my friend to finish doing his dishes, but his mom is lecturing about something. I'm waiting on my computer for him to log on so we could, you know, go on our main quest and go to the castle and slay the dragon and save the princess. He's like, but if I'm waiting for his mom to stop lecturing him so he can finish the dishes and log on, I'm sitting around doing nothing. And so I can go on a side quest. I know that if I need to go to the drag, go to the castle and slay the dragon and save the princess, if I need to do that, I better buy a horse and a sword and some potions and things like that. So in order to do that, I'm looking around my, my, my farm and I'm thinking, well, I should probably tend my crops and I should till my wheat and I should take the wheat to the market where I can get some money in exchange for the money. I can get a horse and a sword so that when my friend does log on, we can go to the castle and slay the dragon and save the princess, which is a brilliant metaphor for life because for all of us who think I'm too old, I'm too tired, I have to finish school first, I got to wait for my kids to get out of the house. Whatever the thing is that you say, I'm just, or I'm not ready, or I don't know, or I'm afraid, or I, I'm, I, I worry about failure, I would say there are side quests that you can mm -hmm. do right now. You can listen to great podcasts like this one. Um, you can read my book. You can read your book. Um, you can read lots of other books that are out there. I'm sure you've had amazing guests in the past that have given all kinds of great ideas. Um, you can watch TED Talks. You can take a class. You can gather people around you in your community, maybe your family, a combination of mm -hmm. friends and family that talk to you about the things that you really want in life and keep you accountable. There's lots of different things that we can do that are just baby steps that are not on the route to your main quest, but are helping you so that when you are ready, when you do have time, when you do break through that doubt and insecurity, you can go on that. You're, you're ready to go. And I think that we all say, I don't have enough confidence. I wish I could. But I think the way that we develop confidence is not to say, I'm going to go run a marathon. We say, wow, I just ran the first mile of my life and I didn't die, maybe I could string three of these together and I can run a 5K. And then after the 5K, we go, wow, what if I did that again? 
And then we do a 10K. And after that, we can do a half marathon. And, and every time you put one step in front of the other, one foot in front of the other, we go, wow, I have competence. I've developed competence. And in that competence, I have now seen confidence that I can do more. And so I think all these little side quests both make us better right now by giving us knowledge and networks and, and, and information and resources. But they also, without you even realizing it, start to seed confidence in your mind because through these side quests, you're developing competence. I love it. So I'm going to talk about a side quest as if you were in a side car. In your stories and in your book, you talk quite a bit about other people who have inspired and encouraged and taught you. Some of them are miraculous. Some of them are just remarkable. Yeah, yeah. Some of them are just stewards of the resources at a high level. But is there one story that you wrote about that you're like, John, gosh, can I just tell you and share with your audience this one example of someone who is living limitless? Well, I would have to say Joshua Mance. And you knew I was going to pick him, right? Well, there's so many. <laughs> if you don't pick him, great. But I think he's the finest example. So talk about Joshua. So I met Joshua Mance when he and I were both volunteering to speak at an Army base in Japan. The Army has a transition assistance program, which is pretty well known to not be fantastic. And so a lot of nonprofits will partner with them to bring more modern resources and information. And there's this great nonprofit called American Dream U, um, which partners with the Army. And, and, and actually all branches of the military, but mostly through the Army, and then they bring other soldiers to base um, mm -hmm. to help them think about how to create LinkedIn profiles and start doing networking and sort of how do they, what do they do? How do they, when they're, when they're active duty ends, how do they continue their professional life in a way that feels relatively seamless to them? And so I got connected with them, and the, the, the organizer called me up and says, so we've got six speakers. We're bringing you all out to Camp Zama in Japan. And let me tell you about the speakers. And it was like a, 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 a female vet who works with homeless people. It was an entrepreneur. It was the COO of Starbucks Canada. He goes, and then there's Josh Mance who died on the field in Iraq and came back to life. <laughs> And I said, you can't make me follow the dead guy. I'm a pretty good speaker, but I, dude, I can't follow a dead guy. 15 minutes <laughs> dead. That's not fair. Yes. So we get on stage and I do my thing and I talk about, I, at this point, I'm actually talking to people about how to find nonprofit work because, you know, this is a group of people who have volunteered to dedicate themselves to service. Clearly, jobs of service afterwards are a great opportunity for them. And then Josh gets up and he tells the story. And have you spoken with military? They're a tough audience, right? Correct. They just sort of sit straight, bolt upright, and they, they're in information intake mode, and they, they, they give you kind of stone face the entire time. And then Josh gets up, and every single person in that audience like leans forward and is like, you can just see the emotion in their face, and they've got tears in their eyes. And, and he tells a story about how he knew exactly what was happening when the bullet struck his femoral artery. And he knew exactly what was happening as he fell to the ground. And he knew exactly what was happening as the blood pooled in his chest cavity, as it does when your you know, body's making a last-ditch effort to, to save itself. And he knew exactly what was happening when he thought about his mother and thought about his sister and took his last breath and died. He was dead for 15 full minutes, which is like eight minutes past when they're supposed to call death. Mm -hmm. But these young 19-year-old medics continued to work on him, and somehow miraculously, his pulse returned. And even more miraculously, he returned to life with full brain function. And now Josh has always been that kind of person who was in this singular myopic, like fastest route possible, get promoted as early as you possibly can kind of career. 
And so when he came back to life, he threw himself right back into this career with such vigor that he gave himself a Crohn's disease outburst that was almost so bad it nearly killed him again. Mm. So he had to leave the army, and he doesn't do things halfway. So he joined, what else, the fastest-growing private sector company in the world, Tesla. And he spent his time at Tesla helping them build employee engagement programs. All the while, he's getting called to go public speaking about his life and his death and his struggle turns his scars into strength. And if you haven't watched his TEDx, it's absolutely amazing. And you should definitely link to it in in the show notes. Um, It's so moving. And he's finding that he's got this allurement, right? He is totally called to doing the speaking, but he also can't give up this idea of success of like being the person who's helping create these employee engagement programs for Tesla. And and he's he's torn both ways. And then he he realizes one day that what needs to happen is that he needs to take his his mission, his mission in life, his calling, which is to help people who are struggling with trauma and really understand what happens for PTSD, of course, but also for people dealing with opioid addiction or um, domestic abuse or anything, uh, sexual violence or any other type of trauma that they're dealing with. And because he is this unimpeachable voice about the subject area, he ends up leaving Tesla and he's now creating his own consulting model where he is reinventing how we think about trauma today and how we do turn these scars into strengths. And so he's somebody who had to let go of every single, like literally like medal of honor, right? Telling you, check, you've succeeded. Check, you've succeeded. You've done all these right things. You're the good soldier, literally. And he had to let that go and live in this really uncomfortable, unknown space that now he understands fully how he can reach into his calling. And he's super connected every day to it. He's able to manifest these values in his life and he's able to, to, to really sort of see how this is going to impact the, the, the type of career he wants to create. And he has ultimate control over how he does it. So he's found a place where he is limitless because he figured out how to let go of everybody else's ideas and expectations and be the person that he was born and frankly reborn to become. When you, <laughs> so you share that story with such passion and vigor, it, it is uh, electrifying. For those who have heard your speak or read your book or they're following the process, they've taken the quiz, now they're ready to uh, show up for game day. Share a short example, maybe not on the battlefield of Iraq, but in, in, in the backyard of life that will touch our hearts right now as we prepare to take this podcast, to take your story and to live it. So Laura, what, what's an example from someone who, who read that book or heard you speak and they now are choosing to live limitlessly? I've had so many people who have come right. up to me since the book now and said, you know, I've read your book. I heard you speak. I've, I've, I decided to leave my company and finally start the business that I want to start. Or I had somebody said, I finally, I decided to leave my husband because it wasn't making me happy. Um, or I had somebody who said, you know, I decided to go back to school. There's a woman in my book named Tara Diab, who is a carpenter. And mm-hmm. she literally got the art of the book tattooed on her arm. Um, I profiled her in the book and she said it moved her so much to hear her story being told because she always felt like she's a nobody. She's just a carpenter. She, you know, she, she does, she does construction for a living. Why would anybody want to profile her? But the way that she has decided to live her life and do work of quality that she knows isn't just good enough till the check clears, but is actually worthy of her name. She she wanted to remind herself of how does she be that person every single day. And so she 
got a tattoo of the art of her on her arm to remind her of that. And I thought that was incredible. And even more so, she's decided what she really loves. And she's a, she's actually a woman that I know through my competitive rowing team. She she actually decided that what she really loves is she loves the time that she spends in the gym encouraging other people. And at 56 years old, she's going back to college to get a degree in sports physiology because she wants to become a, a, a trainer. And I just to me, I think that that's such a wonderful story because this is somebody who has been knocked down a million different mm-hmm. times in life, and she keeps getting up and saying, you know what? I can be more because I am who I am. There is more inside of me. And I think she's somebody who has decided not to look at failure as finale, but to look at failure as fulcrum, that moment that you know we can grow and we can learn and we can improve every moment, that, that when things don't go right, it's not the end of the line because there's still breath in our body and we can still do more. Well, the book is called Limitless and it is a cool read. It is packed with stories like that and not only the stories of others, but ultimately how we can apply it in our own lives. Laura, we tie all of our guests together with seven questions. We call them the Live Inspired Seven. And I'd like to walk you through these questions. Question number one is, what is the best book you've ever read? So it's a fictional book called Stones from the River, and it's set in World War II Germany, and it's about a dwarf named Trudy Montag, who is actually ignored by everybody because she's a dwarf. They think she's a nobody. And she hears all these secrets from all the Nazis, and she's actually able to um, to, to work with the resistance to top, topple the Nazis because nobody thought that she was anybody. And I love that book because it tells us that our lot in life is not our destiny. <laughs> awesome. What is one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a child that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Oh boy. I talked to strangers more often. I was, I was more, I was more extroverted. Wow. Awesome. Well, you can return to that one. I have a feeling there are many strangers lining up to say hello to you after you're done speaking. If your home caught fire and all living things are already out and you have a chance to run in and grab one item, Laura, what's the one item you would grab? You know, my husband writes me a letter every year. It's almost like a state of the union (laughs) on our anniversary. And I think I would grab those because they really are a chronicle of our 23 years together. That, That is a beautiful thing and how cool for your husband to do. Great example for the rest of us. If you uh, could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anyone, living or dead, who would you want seated next to you? I think my children's future selves, you know, the, the people that they become after I'm long dead, I, I want to know how the story turns out. Wow. Uh, I have a feeling with their mom being who she is, the stories are going to be beautiful and the best for them is yet to well, come. I mean, their mom did write a book that subtitled How to Ignore Everybody. So sometimes that comes back and bites me in the rear a little. (laughs) That's awesome. They already have been living that subtitle for quite a while. So you might as well write it into your book. Why not? Laura, what's the best advice you've ever received? You're just not that important. What does that mean to you? Pretty good advice because I was working really hard to be all things to all people and not actually being present for anybody. And so the advice was, you're not that important to everything. Figure out where you are that important and double down there instead. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Write your plans in pencil because (laughs) even if you think you know yourself and you don't, the world around you is going to change. If I were talking to my 20-year-old self right now and giving her advice, uh, on a podcast that was recorded over the internet that she's listening to on her mobile phone. None of those things existed. So even if I knew myself, the world around me would change so much that I, I would have to be flexible. That's awesome. Write your plans with pencil. 
And Laura, it has been said that all great people, authors, rowers, mothers, leaders can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? That's such a good one. I think I would want the one sentence to say, my life was better because she was part of it. Laura Gassner, our life is better because you are part of it. You have reminded us of the gift of choosing, and I really do believe it is a choice to be limitless. I want to thank you for your work. Thank you for your time. And certainly thank you for your impact. Thank you so much. This was great fun. My friends, that is Laura Gassner-Odding. I am John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live limitlessly and live inspired. Okay, guys, I know what you're thinking. John, we get it, man. We get it. Rate and review the podcast. But my friends, listen, it really does help other people find our show, which allows us to grow our Live Inspired community. Don't you want to help other people feel fired up about their lives just the way that you feel fired up about yours? So please go right now to Apple Podcast or anywhere that you listen and give us a five-star rating and then go ahead and share what you enjoy most about the Live Inspired podcast together. We can make a difference.